you have your Bibles, turn to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3. I want you to think about how important preparation is to almost every area of your life. Think of how important it is with the food that you eat that it's prepared the right way. One ingredient that's off and that doesn't taste as good anymore, does it? We've all done it, right? We've tried to follow a recipe and we messed up and the finished product didn't taste anywhere near as good as we thought it would. Same thing goes for the car that you drive. If you don't maintain the car, if you're not prepared to drive your car, you will essentially get into a wreck or have it stall out on you if you don't keep up with the maintenance. Even with the children that we are to raise as parents, it's important to prepare them for everyday life, for the future, for them as they grow up to be adults. Many of us, we have preparation that matters to us when it comes to the goals that we're trying to achieve in this life. There are certain things that we set before ourselves and say, listen, I want to really get this done, so I need to get these things done first so I can get to that goal that I'm really aiming for. The greatest of these things in our lives that we need to prepare for and ought to always be prepared for is to walk faithfully with God. You see, back in Malachi chapter 3, Malachi promises that after a pause, God will send someone to prepare them for the ultimate fulfillment of prophecy, the sending of Messiah. In Malachi chapter 3 verse 1, it says this, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. After dealing with the corruption and betrayal of the leadership in Israel, God redirects the conversation to the nation as a whole. He begins in chapter 3 to look to the future with a promise of a messenger and the coming judgment. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. This is a direct quote that is clearly spelled out for us in the New Testament, who this is in reference to. In Matthew chapter 11, just a book over, verses 7 through 10, here's what it says. As they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, this is John the Baptist, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet, for this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Then you go to the next book in Mark 1, verses 2 through 4. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance 
for the remission of sins. John the Baptist is a messenger that is spoken of here in Malachi chapter 3, who is promised as the one who pleads with the people to repent of their sins. John's mission was to point these people to their Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. John came on the scene about 400 years after Malachi is written, calling people to repent of their sins. And the particular sin that Malachi essentially is dealing with is the sin of syncretism. Syncretism is what priests were practicing back in the time of Malachi, where they mixed their religious practice of worshiping Yahweh to mixing it with Baal worship or Ashtoreth. Syncretism, by the way, still exists in churches today, which mix the worship of God with the paganism of the world. Here are just a few examples of what that might look like today. One of the major ones that has really come on the scene, I would say in the last 15 to 20 years, is Christian meditation or yoga. The mixing of Eastern practices of emptying your mind with the biblical principles of Scripture of filling your mind. The practice of yoga is the practice of becoming one with the universe or one with yourself. Ultimately is the mixing of Hinduism with Christianity. Instead of casting off a dangerous worldview, it is the acceptance of it and tying it in with Christianity and being a follower of Jesus Christ. It's a very dangerous situation in the church today where many lack discernment to see how dangerous this really is. What's unfortunate is many Christians borrow more from Hinduism than Christianity when they do this. And they attach Jesus to the mix. It's very dangerous what's going on in the church today when it comes to these things. Another one that began in the 1980s that many of you may not have heard of as much, but it really has been on the rise a lot more than we would like to admit, is Chrislam. In the 1980s, it started spreading the compatibility of Christianity with Islam, which is frankly very, very impossible if you looked at the two worldviews and the two religious systems. These are diametrically opposed to each other. Christianity states that Jesus is the only one that saves, whereas Islam is opposed vehemently to this truth. Those that seek to mix are essentially misunderstanding what each teaches which shows a lack of discernment in the church today. This is how syncretism works itself out. The senses are numbed and discernment is lost. Which is one of the reasons why, I, before I get to this last one that's truly been prevalent the most probably in the church, I want you to know that when you and I mix the philosophies of the world with what God's word says, we essentially lose discernment bit by bit in our Christian walk. The more you and I borrow from the world, the less we'll be faithful to the text of Scripture. The last one, I would say, is probably the most prevalent in the church today. It goes under the title Progressive Christianity. This one focuses more on the social justice movement and the social causes of society while denying that Scripture holds absolute authority. The Bible is more of a good guidance with some good things to help us along the way. But the texts dealing with sexual sins aren't to be taken at face value. Those are just suggestions and outdated. 
Jesus is viewed through a progressive Christian lens as an activist, championing the, championing, championing the people's oppression instead of a savior who saves people from sin. Essentially, sin turns into, I've been oppressed, I need help, rather than I've sinned against God. One of the greatest achievements of progressive Christianity to those that follow this teaching is to find out who you really are by being in touch with how you feel. This movement, progressive Christianity, borrows from the postmodern movement where truth is defined by what you and I like instead of the absolutes of Scripture. Love is love is a true statement to progressive Christians. It opens the door to place personal preferences above God's Word. This is the reason that feeling like you worship when music moves you can be a dangerous assumption. Here's the danger of a church that's heading towards progressive Christianity. Outside of redefining the Bible and truth, the terms themselves are redefined to mean something else. I will go as far as saying this as a pastor. Progressive Christianity is more dangerous for you and I than the outright atheism and agnosticism that's in the world. Because it masquerades as the true faith. Progressive Christianity sugarcoats the truth with very similar lingo. And it ends up being miles apart from what is clearly taught. Churches need to be consistent in teaching the truth as revealed in God's word. And that includes areas where there is tension. Because there are sinners who do not want to be called out for their sin. Essentially, progressive Christianity is simply just a few steps behind the rest of culture. That's why it took him a couple years to accept homosexuality as normal in our country today. It takes them a couple years to always accept what the culture is promoting. Being familiar with God's word isn't a requirement to them, as many interpret what they believe God is like by what they personally feel. Which is one of the reasons why, believer, when you and I borrow from them in this practice, I need you to understand that this is what they really believe. When you and I try to find and cherry pick a verse to prove our point to somebody, we're practicing what progressives practice, which is I'm going to pick and choose what I really want the Bible to say for myself. Be very careful that you don't do that with God's word. Make sure that you read the context. The call to repent of sin means that the sins that are committed are many times a result of mixing the biblical worldview with one that is secular or worldly. You see, the reality is most Christians believe they are good because they sprinkle some Bible verses into the mix, but are more corrupted by the world than they'd readily admit. This is why weekly worship services are viewed as something you should feel like doing in American churches. You don't feel like doing it, don't go. It's not any more important than anything else you've got going on. Believers, we we really need to see how much more we've been affected by this than we'd like to admit. Our worship of God is on equal ground with our relaxation, entertainment, or our sports. It's a la carte. Pick and choose when you want to go to church. Pick and choose when you want to make God a priority. By the way, that is influenced by progressive Christianity. Because if it's more important than the rest of the things in your life, you're a legalist. You see, so many are afraid of being labeled a legalist, they swing to the outright lackadaisical careless living that you find in churches today. 
By the way, believer, I want to make this statement clear. Trying to honor God above all does not equate to legalism. Do not confuse the two. In fact, R.C. Sproul states that there are technically three different types of legalism. Number one, the person that keeps the law as a list of do's and don'ts without a heart for God. No passion or love for God, just mere formalities, just going through the motions. Number two, the person that cares about the letter of the law without the spirit of the law. This one varies slightly from the first in that it obeys in the external sense, wanting only to look the part. False piety is exemplified like the Pharisees, caring more what it looks like than just doing or not doing because God says so. And then the third one, which is the one that most people really think of when they think of legalism, it's the person that adds to God's laws and treats them at the same level as God's word, adding divine authority to their own made-up rules that God never created, restrictions where God's word provides freedom, and making it a matter of salvation is this type of legalism. This is essentially what the Galatians battled against, if you read the book of Galatians. Commenting on this last form of legalism, R.C. Sproul says this, each church has a right to set its own policies in certain areas. For example, the Bible says nothing about soft drinks in the church's fellowship hall, but a church has every right to regulate such things. But when we use these human policies to bind the conscience in an ultimate way and make such policies determinative of one's salvation, we venture dangerously into territory that is God's alone. Many people think that the essence of Christianity is following the right rules, even rules that are extra-biblical. For example, the Bible doesn't say that we can't play cards or have a glass of wine with dinner. We can't make these matters the external test of authentic Christianity. That would be a deadly violation of the gospel because that would substitute human tradition for the real fruits of the Spirit. We come perilously close to blasphemy by representing Christ, misrepresenting Christ in this way. Where God has given liberty, we should never enslave people with man-made rules. We must be careful to fight this form of legalism. You see, most of us, we, we notice the last form of legalism, right? adding rules on top of God's word. Especially we see that in others, right? When others practice this around us, we're like, hey, I see this. They're trying to impose something that's not really what God's word says, and they're making it a standard of God's word. But I want you and I to notice the first two and pay attention if we don't fall into that form of legalism sometimes. The one where we serve God without a heart for him, just going through the motions, with a possible concern only for the external, as long as it looks good to everybody outside. Be careful that what God calls you to do in serving him does not get diminished simply because you're afraid of being called a legalist by others. Your heart should be right before God, and him alone is the one that you should seek. God was sending the final prophet, John the Baptist, who would announce the coming of Messiah, the messenger of the covenant. You see, Jesus is the ultimate promise in the covenant that God made with Abraham. If you go back to Galatians 3, 15 and 18, you see this tie-in. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant. Yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now to Abraham and, Abraham and his seed were the promises made. 
He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. And this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. You see, God promised certain things to the nation of Israel through Abraham. He also promised certain things to the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the ultimate fulfillment of blessing to the nation and other nations around. The law served a purpose. It has always served a purpose, and that purpose was always to point us to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. They were looking ahead. We are looking back to the finished work of Christ. That's always been the purpose, to bring us to repentance, to turn from our sin to our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Malachi continues here in the text and points to the second coming of Christ when he comes to judge. But who, in verse 2, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord, as in the days of old, as in former years. And I will come near you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against sorcerers, against adulterers, against perjurers, against those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans, and against those who turn away an alien, because they do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Notice what he begins with here. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? The question really is one of preparation. Is a person prepared to meet this God who will judge one day? Are they prepared for his coming again, the Lord Jesus Christ's return? There's an incredible text that we read in 2 Peter 3 that expands more on the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. In 2 Peter 3, verses 1 through 9, we read the following. Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, And saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget. That by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. 
But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I want you to notice the similarities between the text in Malachi and the connection here of being mindful of the words spoken by the holy prophets. You see, when Peter's writing these words, he's saying, you need to look back and see what you were warned about. The coming judgment by fire is coming on this earth. And many are still laughing about it, thinking it's all just a fake plot. You know, it baffles me as a pastor to have seen the pandemic rage through this world and the lack of people turning to God in repentance, even though it's a clear evidence that life is short. You see the war in Ukraine and you think more people would wake up. They don't. You see what's going on in Israel yesterday and you wonder, are we this numb as a people? Do we have any value for life anymore? That we deceive our neighbors to get something for ourselves. God's promise of judgment will be accomplished. The coming judgment by fire is coming. Unfortunately, as back then, so as it is today, people willfully ignore it and forget that warning. By the way, though, God's promise of judgment also has a promise of restoration for those that are his own, even among the nation of Israel. In Ezekiel 20, we're going to read verses 33 through 36 and 40 through 44. Here's what we see. As I live, says the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm, and with fury poured out, I will rule over you. I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you are scattered with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm, and with fury poured out. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples, and there I will plead my case with you face to face, just as I pleaded my case with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt. So I will plead my case with you, says the Lord God. Jumping down to verse 40. For on my holy mountain, on the mountain height of Israel, says the Lord God, there all the house of Israel, all of them in the land, shall serve me. There I will accept them. And there I will require your offerings and the first fruits of your sacrifices together with all your holy things. I will accept you as a sweet aroma when I brought you from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you have been scattered. And I will be hallowed in you before the Gentiles. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. When I bring you into the land of Israel, into the country for which I raise my hand in an oath to give to your fathers. And there you shall remember your ways and all your doings with which you were defiled. And you shall loathe yourselves in your own sight because of all the evils that you have committed. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. When I have dealt with you for my name's sake, not according to your wicked ways, nor according to your corrupt doings, O house of Israel, says the Lord God. 
The promise of restoration to the nation of Israel is there, as is the promise of judgment. God's promise of restoration to the nation of Israel and regathering will lead to their return to Him. This should be an encouragement for us as believers. Because God made those promises to them, when He makes those promises to us, we can bank on them as well. In 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 15, it says this, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. You see, just as God promises to restore Israel, he promises a day that we will be examined ourselves as believers to reward us for being faithful. What we do on this earth will one day be tested as through fire to see if it endures. Unfortunately for many, there will only be loss and not much gain or rewards. The unfortunate truth for many a follower of Jesus is that there will be a loss of reward to the extent that they will be empty-handed with nothing to give back to Christ, no crown to offer him. You see, there were not only saints that are addressed, but also the ungodly, as we go back to Malachi chapter 3. In verse 5, you read this, and I will come near you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against sorcerers, against adulterers, against perjurers, against those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans, and against those who turn away an alien, because they do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. There's a similar description that we find in the parallel text in Ezekiel 20, 37 through 39. We didn't read these verses earlier. Ezekiel 20, verses 37 through 39, here's what it says. I will make you pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. I will purge the rebels from among you, and those who transgress against me. I will bring them out of the country where they dwell, but they shall not enter the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Just as the nation of Israel had people that were not of the remnant, rebels if you will, so in the church today, and Paul warns about that in his writings, that there are many who claim to be followers of Jesus, but are the tares. Those that one day God will pluck up as those that were opposed to him. God always deals with rebels differently than those who are broken and hurting, longing for mercy. The particular people that he points out in Malachi, we're going to briefly summarize here. The first category is sorcerers. These are people who were outright involved in the occult and practiced the things that really opposed God. Believer, God has no tolerance for outright embracing of the darkness. 
And we tolerate darkness a lot in Christian circles today. We think we can mess around with it and it won't harm us. I promise you one thing, believer. When you and I mess around with this, there are severe consequences in this life. There are severe consequences to those that believe that they can mix darkness with light. Realize one thing, believer, that the things in the world that you think are really so neutral aren't so neutral. The darkness is not neutral. It's darkness for a reason. It is opposed to the ways of God. The second group that is mentioned here is adulterers. Those that were seduced by pagans who caused them to be immoral against the wife that God had given them. These essentially group of people that God mentions here were those that were unfaithful to their marriage vows. These were people that truly were to live faithfully before God, but were living diametrically opposed to him in their own marital relationships. Notice that it says that they were seduced by pagans. We just read that recently last week. If you and I believe that we are neutral, that we will not be tempted, we are fooling ourselves. It does not take much for Christians today to fall in these areas. And as Scripture says, take heed lest you fall. Because the reality is a lot of people think they're beyond these faults. The third group that's mentioned here are perjurers. Those who use God's name in deceit, who falsely use God's name. They are liars pretending to tell the truth. One of the most dangerous things is for a believer to go around telling and proclaiming to everyone that they love God, but in every area of their life they're denying him and lying. It's a testimony that is shattered. It's a testimony that is false. It's a testimony that speaks to wickedness rather than righteousness. Perjurers, those that falsely use God's name in deceit. We've all been guilty of speaking one thing to others, but truly inside we haven't been right with God, haven't we? We've been inconsistent coming to church on Sunday, proclaiming to everyone that everything is fine, all the while wondering why we're even here because of how we did this last week. Believer, coming to church on Sunday should be the time that you stop and ponder what it is that God has done in your life and what it is that he would want you to repent of and to get right before him. You don't come to church to get right with God you come to church essentially because Christ has made you right with God. You come to church to repent in areas that you need to, confess your sin where you need to. You come to church because fellowship with the saints is important. Encouragement is important. God's word is important. The number four category that's mentioned here are exploiters of others. These are people that took advantage of others for the work that they did and gave them little to no pay while hoarding it for themselves. These are people that truly took advantage of others in their most dire situation. And specifically, 
groups like orphans and widows are mentioned. These are essentially the business that goes, I'm supporting those that are in need, but truly pocketing the most for the executives. Those that are really on the top of that. And very little of it actually goes to the people that really need it. God takes this very seriously, believer. We are not to defraud one another. Scripture speaks to that in the New Testament. That means that when we deal with one another, we need to be honest with one another. We need to be truthful. And at times, it's going to be hard to be consistent, but we need to be. One of the areas that truly is heartbreaking is when many do not like when someone else is asking them to do something, and it's perceived that they're being taken advantage of. The reality is this, believer, you and I are called to God, by God to serve, and sometimes it's going to be difficult. One of the areas that's hard for a Christian to live out is when it says, if your enemy is hungry, feed them. Right? If somebody is opposed to what you're believing and, and, and living, you ought not to respond with a vengeance towards them. You leave that to God. Exploiters of others was a group of people that God has very little patience for and severe judgment awaiting. Number five, the last category, is those that pervert justice. These are people who outright show bias to others and can be bought. If a person does more for me, I'm going to benefit them more. If they do less for me, I'm going to benefit them less. So these people would pervert justice. They would turn a blind eye to those they prefer in the name of justice. Believer, God will go after these people simply because of all these qualities, and that flows from one root problem, no fear of God himself. The reason why people are sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, exploiters of others, and pervert justice is because they don't see God for who he is. And any believer that wants to claim that they love God needs to understand when they are inconsistent in these areas, they don't truly fear him. You can't claim to fear God that you don't respect. You can't claim that God is your all when you truly deny him and many of the practices that he's opposed to. God himself is to be respected and his word to be upheld. But rather he is dismissed by a people that thinks they can do no wrong as long as it feels right. Believer, if your standard of right and wrong is how you feel about a situation, you better watch out. You better watch out. There are many Christians that live by that standard, and they claim to not be progressive in their thinking. Just because something feels right doesn't make it right. Bottom line for all of us, I want to ask you this question as we close. Are you prepared? Are you prepared? Because the reality is all of us are going to face Christ one day and stand before him. Peter's encouragement was a rather straightforward one regarding the one day meeting with Christ. In 2 Peter 3, 14 through 18, here's what he says. 
Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which some are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus, Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. You see, believer, you and I need to be absolutely diligent in our walk with God. And that walk is to be lived in the community and fellowship of other believers. If you're a believer who doesn't feel like church is necessary, you have been deceived into minimizing a vital part of your Christian walk, a part of your discipleship process. Going to church cannot save you. That is not something that we are claiming here this morning. But it is a crucial part of the process of discipleship which every believer is called to. Take care, as Spurgeon says here, take care of giving up your first zeal. Beware of cooling in the least degree. You were hot and earnest once, be hot and earnest still. And let the fire which once burnt within you still animate you. Be still men of might and vigor, men who serve their God with diligence and zeal. Let's be a prepared church ready for the Lord Jesus' return.